Great to be with you. So you're all in Romans 1 by now. So again, as I said, everyone should read Romans at least three or four times a year because Paul in Romans, he preaches the law. He magnifies sin, not just for people individually, but he magnifies sin for the entire world and therefore for the sake of preaching Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, not just for you individually, but also for the entire world. Now, remember that Paul wants to go to Spain and so he's going to go to Rome and stop off there. So we read the first part of Romans. And remember, just by way of review, that the gospel is what, according to Romans, Romans 1.16? What is it? The gospel is the, do you remember? The power of God for salvation to those who believe. So keep in mind, the law is one thing, the gospel is another. As we will learn from Romans, especially Romans 3, the law, namely the Ten Commandments, reveals our sin shuts us up before God so that we quit offering excuses and it holds us accountable to God. That's the law, the Ten Commandments. And the gospel is a completely different thing. The gospel actually preaches Jesus Christ as the savior of sinners who do not keep the law and actually rebel against God and his word. So keep them straight. Law is one thing, the gospel's another. Don't confuse them. That's always the danger in the church, is to turn the law into a gospel. That is to say, using the law as some kind of instrument for salvation. That'll always be a losing proposition. And then the other danger is to turn the gospel into a new law. And the medieval church did that in spades. Oh, if you, if you want to learn history, just study the medieval church. Like, from example, 1000 A.D. all the way through 13. 100 A.D., 1400 A.D., the 1400s, and you will hear the, the preachers and the teachers in the medieval church in Western Europe speak of the gospel as the new law. In other words, you have new principles to follow. That's the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell you what to do. The gospel tells you what Jesus did for you for your salvation, so keep them straight. Y'all in Romans 1? All right, now verse 18. Here Paul is going to magnify the wrath of God against sin and sinners... And he's going to do it in a way that is culturally inappropriate, not only in his day, but ours. So if you think that our day is any different, it's not. The culture in which we live, Paul was, had it in spades as well, as you will now realize. Verse 18, the wrath of God, that means anger. God's anger is being revealed. Notice the tense, not will be, but is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth by their what? By their wickedness. That's verse 18. Now he's going to, see, he's going to give examples of how they suppress the truth with their wickedness. Let's keep going. 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, that is to say, these people know that there is a God. More on that in a moment. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So everybody, whether you're a believer or not, all you have to do is look at the world and you know there is a God. Now, if you say there isn't, you're just simply lying. Keep your finger in Romans, if you will. Go to Psalm 19. Keep your finger in Romans. Go to Psalm 19. This is going to joyfully blow your mind. <laughs> because you think that only Kuhlman preaches. I got news for you. Something else preaches. <laughs> Psalm 19. Verse 
Psalm 19, I think that's correct. Yes, it is. Psalm 19, we're going to read just the first couple of verses of Psalm 19. Now, we're, we're doing this piggybacking on Romans 1, where Paul says that everybody can look at creation, whether you're a believer or not, you know that there is a creator, okay? And I, I've, I've tweaked this a little bit just to have fun with you. You know, you think that only Kuhlman's the one who preaches? Well, I do, of course. I preach both law and gospel, and I try to properly distinguish between the two. But guess who else preaches? Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. So creation itself is a preacher, if you will, proclaiming that there is a what? A God. Because somebody had to make it. Okay. Look at verse 2. Day after day, they, namely the heavens and the skies, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Now, Christians understand this. The unbelievers don't. So here's my point. Go back to Romans 1. We'll come back to that in a moment. So here's my point. We who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and we who believe in Him, we know that when we look at creation, when we look at those beautiful fields, the trees, the mountains, I was watching a golf tournament this morning because I've got nothing to do except, you know, something, maybe an hour on Sunday. So I was watching a golf tournament on uh, the Golf Channel this morning and it was in Switzerland. My goodness, the Alps are absolutely just beautiful. Now, when you look at the Alps, and the Swiss Alps in particular, as a Christian, you say, God made those. What a wonderful creation He's made for us. Make sense? Now, the unbeliever refuses to believe this, thinking they know everything, but they believe a lie. And what's the lie? There is no, there is no God. So back to Romans 1. The end of verse 20 says, so that they're without excuse. So people are without excuse. Verse 21. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. Now here, here's, when you deny God and when you, when you deny that you can actually recognize God through His creation, now I have to make another distinction here. When you look at creation, sometimes the, the, crea the creation is a fallen creation, right? Because of Adam. Because of Adam's sin, creation is fallen. And so there are earthquakes. There are, what else? Volcanoes, right? There are tornadoes, right? And so sometimes nature, bad things happen. That's a result of Adam's fall into sin. So you look at creation right now, it's a beautiful day, and you can recognize that God created this and gave this to us as a gift. Okay, but if you're an unbeliever, when you see tornadoes, floods, etc., you must say, there is no God, God would never create this. But we have to recognize this distinction. That's one distinction. The other is this, is that an unbeliever looking at creation won't ever get this far. I'm going to say that again. Unbelievers, when they look at creation, all they see is creation. Sometimes it's a good day, sometimes it's not so good. But creation itself will never preach who? Jesus. That's why God sends preachers. We'll hear about this in Romans 10. God sends preachers because when people look at nature, nature doesn't preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen for salvation. That's another important distinction to make. All right, any questions about that? Okay, back to Romans 1 then. So when you don't believe this stuff, notice what happens to these people. It's verse 23. These people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. Now, you remember 
you, you, you like Brooklyn, I'm, I, you don't have to answer. Brooklyn and Hannah and whoever else is, you know, Brian, they've all gone through this catechesis with me, you know. And one of the Bible stories we read was Daniel, remember? And Nebuchadnezzar built a what of gold? Remember that? And yeah, statue, an image of gold, 90 feet tall, and I think it was like nine feet wide. And whose image do you think was probably on that? Probably Nebuchadnezzar's. So he wanted people to worship him, a creature. A creature pretended to be God. Pharaoh, remember in the ancient world, Pharaoh believed that he was a son of the gods and that he was to be worshipped as divine. So look at what we've got again. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man. Nebuchadnezzar, remember? Remember in Daniel? You hear the orchestra? Bow down, worship the image of gold. And no doubt Nebuchadnezzar's image was on it. So in other words, these people, when you don't believe there's a creator, you think you're the creator. You think you're divine and that you need to be worshipped. Now this all goes back to where? Where does this all begin? What Paul's describing here and what Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encountered. Genesis 3, when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you shall be as God, and you'll call the shots. You'll say what's good, you'll say what's evil. You're in charge. In other words, there is no God. You're God. That's where this all comes from. Let's keep going. And they made, they're made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles. So when you study ancient civilizations like Egypt, you've got the sphinx, right? Half, okay, half this animal, half man, man's face. I think that's the sphinx. I'm just doing this top. Is that correct? Lion's body, is that the sphinx? I can't remember. But you understand what I'm saying? Egypt is a classic example of this. The Sumerians, all these ancient civilizations where they exchange, when you don't believe in a divine creator, then you make idols for yourself, whether it's a creature, a bird, a reptile, or yourself. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Now when people do this purposely, this is what God does. He punishes sin with more sin. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over. Notice he does the verb here. God gives them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. So in other words, if you want to have it this way, all right, I'm going to give you what you want, and this will be your punishment. And what is it? It will be this. <clears throat> the desire of their heart will be given over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and what do they do? They worship and they serve not the Creator, but what does the text say? created things, whether it's birds, reptiles, or themselves, rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Now again, just to repeat to make this clear, Paul is making a clear point here, and the point is this, is that when you don't believe in a Creator, you believe you're the Creator, and you worship yourself, God says, all right, if that's what you want, have it your way. And then when you think you're in charge, and you think you're wise, you do very wicked things with your body. In other words, you don't use your body in the way that God made it and the way God wants it to be used. Let's keep going because he's going to talk more about that. Verse 26, because of this, notice who does the verb again. God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, 
the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Look at verse 28 now. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, in other words, they don't believe in a God, what does God do? He gives them over, this is like the third time now where God does these verbs, He gives them over to a depraved mind and to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. And notice what else they do. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but notice what they do. So if you thought today was the most wicked time in the history of the world, you haven't seen anything. You should have gone back to Paul's day. They approve of those who practice them. So what we, well, this is totally countercultural here. Now, let me back this up. So I, I began this study today telling you that Paul will, exp, he will extol, not extol sin, he will expose sin. Big time. So in the ancient world, you had people who did all kinds of bad sexual things, all kinds of immorality, etc. And they thought they were wise, but instead they were foolish because they were not living in a God-pleasing way. So what's the God-pleasing way to live? You all know this from the scriptures, from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He made them male and female. And Genesis 2, which gives the other account, or a, a more detailed account of the creation of, of Adam and Eve. Remember, he, from the ground he creates Adam, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living being. And then Adam falls into a deep sleep. And then from his side, God creates Eve. He brings Eve to Adam, and they're married. And Adam rejoices in the gift of a wife. Bone of my bone, flesh of my bones. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And then God gives his own divine commentary on what he just did. Namely, creating Eve from Adam's side, bringing her to him, and being married. So right away in Genesis 2, you have marriage. But it's marriage between a what? Man and a woman. Male and female. So again, to repeat... I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you, I have to remind you of this so that you can help people. How many genders are there? There's only two. It's male and female. That's it. That's the way God made it, and that's God-pleasing. And those two genders are to be given in holy marriage between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. Because that's the only way life can be created, right? And back, back to, I didn't finish my thought here, the Genesis 2. After what God does, then he gives the divine commentary, and what is it? Moses records God's divine commentary on holy marriage in Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Paul quotes that verse in Ephesians 5. And who else does in the New Testament? For this reason, a man. Who else quotes that Bible passage? Jesus in Matthew 19 and the parallels. Now, the reason I bring up Paul and Jesus, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, and the parallels is because... If you've got a problem with what God did in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, you've got a problem with who, with who else? The Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because he says, remember in Matthew 19, what God has brought together, let no man separate. That's his commentary on it. You understand what I'm doing here? Let me, let me try and clinch it. We know how God has given the genders, and we know for what purpose, for holy marriage. When you don't believe in God and you think you're a divinity, then you do whatever you want. And in Paul's day, they did whatever they wanted. And what's going on in Western Europe, well, just everywhere in the world, the depravity is just, it's just, it's nothing new. It's been, it's been done for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, where you have men with men, women with women. And this is not God-pleasing. Do you have any questions about what we just studied here? So I want to say one more thing, Mike, please. So again, so he, exp he, he exposes the sin for what purpose? Just to say, nah, 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 nah. We're better than you are. That's not the point, because we're not better, as Paul's going to say in the next few chapters, because he's writing to Jewish Christians. Unless these Jewish Christians think they're better than these Gentiles who do these wicked things, Paul says, you're no better, and you've got the word of God. Oh, sorry. Mike? <laughs> so uh, they know that there's a God, they just That is correct. Yes. But now it now becomes they can. That is correct. So the difference is, is that one is like you're saying that they don't believe, but it's really that they it's in them to automatically know God is true. So it's basically they can. Yes, it is, because Satan is the liar and he is the murderer, as Jesus says. He is the liar. He began the lies in Genesis three, which is what? Did God really say? Did he? So he wants to plant doubt. God's holding out on you. And how's he holding out on you? You can be God. Don't be content to be a human being. Be a God. You shall be as God. Eat this fruit. Totally disobey what God said. Disobey it, and you'll be in charge. That's the lie, and that's satanic. So you can diagnose wherever Satan is at. I'm speaking now in general. You can always know where Satan is at work when you have a clear word of God, name the topic, and then somebody contradicts it. Satan's at work. Right? Now notice, uh, just a side note. Do you remember when Paul had to deal with the false teachers at Corinth? There were false teachers at the church in Corinth. And they were leading the Christians astray at Corinth. And Paul calls these false preachers what? They're instruments of the devil. This is 2 Corinthians 11 or 12. Don't, I'm doing this off the top of my head. And he, and he says, this is how Satan works. He works through false preachers. And they parade around as, Remember? as angels of light. Satan works, I can guarantee you, there's many things in life I can't guarantee you, but here's one. I can guarantee you that when Satan appeared to Adam and Eve, he, he appeared as a very slick operator. Eye candy, if you will, for lack of better terminology. And the way he talked was really smooth and persuasive. Okay? It, wasn't, it wasn't Hollywood portrayal of Satan. As if Adam and Eve would just, oh my word. <gasps> no, he was attractive, attractive. And that's false preachers. They're very attractive because they dress like this. And if they don't dress like this, they wear the torn jeans and the sandals, right? You know what I'm talking about. And when they teach false doctrine, Paul says that they are, they are instruments of Satan by which Satan parades around as an instrument of light. He looks very attractive, etc. That's how Satan works. Is there anything else? Is that, is that why 
could be. Yeah, so for example, Bell, what's his first name? Uh, Mike, is it Mike Bell? I'm doing this off the top of my head. Is it Mike Bell? Rob. Rob Bell. Yeah, Rob Bell, eye candy, false preacher. Anybody know about Rob Bell? If you don't, God bless you. Ignorance is bliss. But uh, Mike and I, were geeks. We follow this kind of stuff. Rob Bell is one of these guys that got interviewed on Nightline a few years ago because Rob Bell came out with a book based upon his false preaching, and it's this. There will be no hell. No one will go to hell. That's plainly against Scripture. Okay, So you know Satan's at work. Now, now let me back this up. <clears throat> Just so there's no misunderstanding. Can a pastor dress like this and preach faithfully? Yes. Can a pastor wear torn jeans and a t-shirt and preach faithfully? Yes. You have to listen to what they say. Now, since I brought that topic up, why does Kuhlman dress like this all the time? Well, it's, it's not, to, not to show off, but it's to remind me that I'm in an office. I hold an office. That the Lord Jesus has put me in an office to do certain work and tasks. It's a reminder. So, for example, if you, if you would go to a courtroom, let's say that you get subpoenaed to be a witness this week at a court, okay? And the judge walks in, you know, I'll stand for Judge Smith. And Judge Smith walked in without wearing the robe and looking like some slob. You know what I'm trying to say? Like a homeless slob? You'd be petrified. Because the off, there's a certain kind of dress that befits the office. You understand what I'm trying to say? So on the one hand, and then on the other hand, okay, but you have to listen to what they say. All right, anything else? Are we clear on this topic about same-sex stuff? So if there are any of you here today who doubt, let it be clear that God's will is that there be sexual intimacy and marriage only between a man and a woman. That's it. Anything else adulterates marriage and God's will. It profanes it. Okay. So uh, all this talk about monkeypox, I'm going to make just a remark on that. Monkeypox, generally speaking, is a disease that happens among gay men. And it gets spread to other people like heterosexuals by other kind of contact. But it's basically a disease that has, that has uh, what's the right way to say it, begun with gay men and it's perpetuated among gay men and their lifestyle. Okay? So watch out, watch out, because it's not a heterosexual disease. Now what's happening here? I hope I'm making sense here. Why is there, there monkeypox? Why is there gonorrhea? Why is there AIDS, et cetera, et cetera? Because people are doing things that are not God-pleasing. There are certain parts of the body that goes in certain other parts, and that's it. So uh, there's a part of a man that should go in another part of a woman, and that's it. I'm trying to keep this as G-rated or PG as possible, but I have to be frank, you know? And when you, when you use your body parts in ways that God never intended them to be used, you, bad things happen. Any questions about this? Mom and Dad, I'm sorry if, if uh, you know, but it has to be said. It just simply has to be said. If the, if the, if the church won't teach it, I think we're going to get into bigger trouble. I hope, I hope you're understanding what I'm trying to do here. All right, I better run for the woodshed. Yeah, depraved mind. Yes, so the depraved mind is this. They think that they're very wise, but they are foolish, as Paul says. That's part of it. The other part is the depraved mind is the, is the active rebellion against God's word and his desire for you. That's also a depraved mind. Yes? Okay. 
Right, and this, this is everywhere in the church. And this has always been a crisis in the church. Can we trust God? Can we trust His Now, I'm going to say one more thing on this, and then I want to move on in Romans. Is when, when the church wants to be relevant, the church dies. I'm going to say it again. When the church wants to be relevant, and if you want to be relevant in America, you have to do all these naughty things. And you have to approve of them. And that's the death of the church. Yep, so here's, here's another thing to help you guys to diagnose. Mandate and institution. Mandate and institution from the Word of God. So with regard to marriage, there is a mandate and institution by God. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, and the parables. God speaks to the issue. Namely, there's a mandate of how you are to live as male and female in holy marriage. Mandate, institution. If anything violates the mandate and institution, you know you're dealing with, as Mike has correctly pointed out, a satanic lie, even if they dress like this. Make sense? Mandate and institution. Let me give you another example. Baptism. Mandate and institution. Who has mandated baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Where's that at in the Bible? Matthew 28. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to observe everything I've commanded. Mandate and institution, baptizing and teaching, and not just teaching a few things, but everything he has commanded. And when somebody wants to violate that and say, well, I don't need to be baptized, you are violating the mandate and institution of? Make sense? Yeah, another question or So, I'm not sure I follow. Say it again, please. So, people would hear what I'm saying today and say that we're unloving? Is that what you're saying? How do you respond to that? They say you're a yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, so here's the distinction. We, we, we teach God's Word, and when it exposes sin, we teach God's Word to do that. For what reason? Because we love them. Because we love them, we're going to show them that this is not God-pleasing so that they will then use Jesus properly for the forgiveness of their sins and then lead them and help them in living a God-pleasing life. That's love. Now, you see, when you're an unbeliever and your old sinful nature rebels, that's just an excuse. These people are haters, Christian nationalists, fill in the blank. All that is is a way of self-justifying themselves by putting the blame not on them, but putting the blame on other people people. And as we're going to see in Romans 3, God uses the Ten Commandments so that people stop doing that. So yeah, the charge is, is that our church is unloving. The, it's just the opposite. We are extremely loving by telling people the, the truth. It's just like when you parents, seriously, if you have your little, if you let Charlotte, when she starts to run around on her two feet, and you let Charlotte run out on, on church road, oh, she'll be fine. We would say you're the most unloving parents in the world and the social, social people come and take her away from you. So because you love Charlotte, you make sure she doesn't go play out on Church Road. Make sense? There was another hand. Yes, please. Well, don't you think a lot of ways, like the reason we have these movements and so strong right now is 
And you've just hit it, self-justification. That is another, that's another diagnosis, to justify the self. Yep. And so what does God do through the commandments? To end the self-justification and then finally tell the truth, like King David did when he was confronted with his sin by Nathan. I've sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan said what? The Lord has taken away your sin. That's what we're up to here. Please. On a lighter side, self-justify is cookies the way it works out. Exactly. Now... On that note, so just, just, just so you know that we're not doing this from Scripture to say that we are better than these people. Are we? We're not. We are sinners like all of the people we've just critiqued. We sin in different ways sexually. Maybe not physically, but maybe here. Okay? Jesus says, remember in Matthew 5, You've heard of old that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, and remember, when Jesus says, but I say to you, people who are listening, they're saying, what kind of rabbi is this? Rabbis don't talk like that. Because remember, rabbis in the New Testament would say, you know, Rabbi Cohen says, and then he'd quote Rabbi, Rabbi Leibowitz says, and they'd quote Leibowitz. So Jesus should have followed that tradition. You've heard of old that it was said, and Rabbi Leibowitz says, and Rabbi Cohen says, but Jesus doesn't do that. He says, but I say to you, which means I'm in charge here. I'm God in the flesh. I'll tell you what God's word is. So you've heard of old, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, because he's God in the flesh talking, he's the one who gave the commandment, but I say to you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. So again, my point is, is that I'm no better, you're no better, okay? And we need to be repented as well, okay? And Paul will do this with the people he's writing to in chapters two and three. That's why I'm reminding you of this. So lest that you think or I think we're better, we're not. We are sinners who, who, like them, desperately need the Lord's forgiveness. And we desperately need the Lord's guidance in living a holy life. <laughs> okay. Woo! All right, this is going to leak out and they're going to shut this church down. And any other questions here? Again, he's magnifying the sin for what purpose? To eventually magnify the Savior. Please. And that's why he said, Correct. That's right. He That's why the Lord uses preachers. And so what's the word that the young kids talk about? Accountability. God holds you accountable. Yeah. Let's go. Romans 2. You, therefore, have no excuse. You, who pass judgment on someone else. Now he's talking to the Jewish Christians at Rome. You've seen all this. You've seen the wrath of God at work on these people. God's handed them over to their sinful desires, and you think you're better. Paul says, no, you're not. Let's read again verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge the other, you condemn dun, da, da, yourself. That's why I just did this exercise with you. So again, I have tried to make this point clear, and this is again why we need to read Romans at least three or four times a year, because Paul, he magnifies sin so that, you will, so that Jesus will be magnified even more as we'll get to later. <clears throat> You're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment, you do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth, yeah. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do not do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? You see how he's using the law here? Not, not just against the people that you look at, but against you. Now, now you know why being a pastor is such dicey business. It's easy to critique 
what's going on in our culture. But it's quite another thing for the preacher to say, we're no better. (laughs) And I'm not either, as I said. Do you know, verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? So again, he's trying to lead the Christians at Rome to repentance as well on these matters. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. So look again at verse, verse Romans 1, verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And lest you think you're any better, look what he does in chapter 2. Look again at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness, unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath, God's wrath, against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed, and God will give to each person according to what he has done. So he's magnifying not only other people's sins, he's magnifying our own. And so that's why I gave you this last Sunday. I didn't go over it with you. This is why I gave you this notes on Romans sheet last week, and some of them are still on the table. If you you didn't get it, there are more over here on this table, which says even more what I'm saying today, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 7, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. How do you spell that? F-A-I-T-H. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. How do you spell that in the Bible? Unrepentance. I can't spell it. It's too long a word, but it's unrepentance. Or unfaith. Now verse 9. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. See how he magnifies sin? Not only just for the people that we critique, but for everybody. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. How do you spell that in the Bible, who does good? F-A-I-T-H. When Jesus is asked in the New Testament, this is in the Gospel of St. John, when Jesus is asked this question, what good works should we do? What's the answer? Believe in he who sent me. Believe in the one who sent me. Faith is the good work that Jesus wants the most. He's always seeking faith. And he's not only seeking it, he creates it. What he seeks, he creates through the Gospel. Now that faith then gives birth to other works that are pleasing in God's sight. In any event, look at verse 11. God doesn't show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Again, what's the point? He is magnifying sin not for the people we critique, but for everybody, including you and me. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. It is not, for it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now that's a hypothetical, but who can do that? Only Jesus did that in our place for our salvation. Verse 14, indeed, (coughs) when Gentiles who don't have the law, what does that mean? Non-Jews didn't have the Ten Commandments. God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. All the other nations didn't have it. That's the point, but what happens here? So again, verse 14, Indeed, when Gentiles who don't have the law, namely the Ten Commandments, do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are where? Written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. What's Paul's point? 
The law is written on everybody's heart, whether you're a believer or not. So unbelievers know that it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to cheat in your marriage. They just know it because the law is written on everybody's heart. So nobody's without excuse. Nobody. That makes sense? That's what he's doing here. Nobody's without excuse. Let's keep going. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now more on this, Jewish, Jewish, Jewish Christians, if you think you're better, notice what Paul does in verse 17. Now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, the Ten Commandments, and brag about your relationship to God, now notice what he's connected here. Okay, I've got the Ten Commandments, I do my best, so God, you owe me. That kind of way of talking. You owe me, God, I've tried really hard. Okay. If you think that's how it works, look how it goes. Verse 18, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that they're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, isn't that interesting? Commandments are a teacher of infants. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let me explain that. So the first three commandments have to do with your relationship to God. And my marker doesn't write well, so I won't. And the commandments four through ten are relationship with other people. So with the ten commandments, you have God's complete will for your relationship with Him and with others. It's not only what He expects, but what He declares as well. He declares and He expects this. This is your relationship, how it's to be before Him and others. That's what He's talking about here. Yes? It's not, it is that, but it's not only that, right? So there are three things that God does with the law. First Timothy 1, a civil use to keep things kind of safe. Read that on your own, First Timothy 1. Second use, God has, Romans 3, which we'll get to in the next few weeks, Romans 3, to show us our sin, hold us accountable before God, and to shut our mouths so that we don't give excuses anymore. And then as you just mentioned here, guide. Now, unbelievers don't want to be guided, but we as believers do, and that's the context. But here, the larger context here, what we're reading about is that the Ten Commandments, they do give us, as Paul says, what was it, verse, into verse 20, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. They do. There's only one God. Don't have any others. Use His name properly in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving, and gladly hear and learn His word, Third Commandment. That is the embodiment of truth. Honor authority, parental, civil, churchly, fourth commandment. Protect life, fifth. Got it? This is the embodiment of truth, of how you live before God and before others. And we as believers know that. And we as believers want to do that. Not to be saved, but to be of service to other people in this way. Does that help you, Mike? Yeah. Now here's a crisis in the church, since we've talked just briefly about this is there is a crisis in the church that does not want to use the Ten Commandments as a guide for living. Be aware of that. So if you ever get a pastor that says, you know, the commandments only do two things. The first Timothy thing that I mentioned, and the second use, show us our sin. 
but it doesn't guide us for living. That's false. It does. That's a no-brainer, but just be aware of that. And by the way, so the sermon today, I'm going to preach from Hebrews 13. Giving me a lot of instruction. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God from Hebrews 13 to do two things. The Holy Spirit will reveal your sin, my sin, from that text. And you'll hear about the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus, of course. And because of that, you will now, the Holy Spirit will use that text to instruct you on how to use your money, how to keep the marriage bed pure, how to love one another. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon, but the whole list of instruction. Okay? Let's keep going here. Just a few more minutes. Uh, let's see, what verse were we on? Which verse, pardon me? 21? Yeah, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? What's the answer? Yes. <laughs> yes. Verse 22, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? What's the answer? Yes. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking it? What's the answer? Yes. So again, what's Paul doing? He is magnifying sin, not just certain people, but everybody, including you and me. As it is written, verse 24, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles. But notice, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of who? You. One final point on this. So unbelievers look at you. They watch you. And when you steal, when you do the adultery thing, or just go through all the commandments, when you do those things, the unbelievers watch you, and they do what? What does the text say? They say what? I'm not going to believe in their God. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm not going to believe in their God. I'm not going to be a Christian. And who's responsible for that? Paul says, you are. So again, he's magnifying our sin to where he's eventually going to magnify the Savior of sinners. But we're not there yet. <laughs> the kids are coming in. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed.